You're listening to Red Center, your guide to digital cinema, filmmaking, and cutting-edge imaging. Hello and welcome to Red Centre, episode number 76, recorded on uh, Thursday something or other. 18th of November. 18th of November. I'm still recovering from having seen Harry Potter, the new film, last oh, night. Oh yes, last night. How was it? Oh, it was excellent. It was like, excellent, because everyone's been saying it's really quite dark and Center. morbid and not so good. Well, of course it is. The book's dark and morbid <laughs> and yet I enjoy spending time with the kids from that fun, sunny school of uh, witchcraft. Did your kids go with? Hell no. Okay. Because two is a bit no, too No, this was a press them. screening. Anyway. Oh, okay. So I don't get to take my kids. But right. um, yes, it is dark. And uh, But yes, congrats to all the artists involved. I wish I had some angle to discuss it on Red Centre, but I don't. No, being uh, shot on film mostly, I'd say. I would just say that it's uh, if, if you are into Harry Potter, it's nice to spend time with the guys. And away from school, out and about, field trip. <laughs> okay. Very uh, obscure. Yes. Well, not obscure. Um, so we have a bunch of news coming up. Um, we also have uh, an interesting interview. Um, I'm going to be talking to the guys from Marvin. I remember a couple of weeks ago, I sort of basically explained how I didn't get it. Um, well, they contacted me and said they'd like an opportunity to explain, you know, how it works. And I said we'd be more than happy to do that because obviously they're um, fundamentally, you know, uh, obviously really good guys. I just personally didn't get it or rather didn't agree with the... Um, from where it was coming from for me. But you'll um, hear all that coming up later in the Red Room. Um, and uh, we have quite a lot of news. In t- uh, we would normally have an interview about this, but we don't need to because our own Jason Wingrove... Um, Indeed. ...is uh, is effectively um, in the hot seat. And what I'm referring <laughs> to is that the uh, F3 was announced during the... Uh, I think since, since we last spoke, it was announced. And we... Um, we're lucky enough to join Jason on a shoot as Jason was shooting with the F3. So, Jason, we'll talk about that. Yeah, that was good fun. Thank you. And Mike joined me on that. And so we've had a lot of um, bit of time to play with files and edit and get stuff up. And so, yeah, it's been, it's been good. But before we get to the F3 and Sony's moves into uh, Super 35 size sensors and, and uh, our exclusive discussion, of that, because honestly there were only three of these cameras in the world, and so we, it was very much appreciated to be able to get one to shoot with them. They're actually not out till February. And it's a younger brother, hmm. a large full-size sensor camera and a smaller, cheaper one for $5,000. Sounds familiar. But before it's all we get very to spooky, that, isn't it? Timing is all just weird. It's, I'm just it's Yes. Well, before we, before we get to that, we want to just cover the general news. So let's cross to the news desk. And now, the Red Setter News. Okay, well, I guess a couple of major things for Red, um, main thing being that Epic was, uh, I guess you can call it, declared ready for production, whatever that means. Epic was officially declared for production today. We have prototypes that pass all the requirements we set out uh, for the past few months. That means we'll finish the tattoo program and put tattoos on special jobs and begin offering all the par- uh, ordering all the parts and pieces, over 18,000 of them, to begin production. Uh, this will take a bit of time to set up the line and uh, gather all we need, but the end is in sight. Just to be clear, not every feature is currently enabled, but the most important ones are that the build seems very stable as a foundation and we expect 95% of the features to be ready by the time production epics uh, are released. This is a pretty big day. Jim. So, uh, 
I guess obviously the takeout, which we've kind of been sort of ruminating over before anyway, is the fact that things have a little bit more progressed in terms of production, in terms of the pre-production models, and the tattoo thing was probably going to be a little bit more complicated than first thought and a little less of a rollout. And uh, so tattoos shrunk a lot to basically down to, I think, about a dozen cameras now. Yeah, I mean, the tattoo program was going to be, you know, of the order of like 100 or something plus cameras. Mm. And and uh, and certainly we were hoping to be on the tattoo program, but I mean, I don't feel bad about it. I mean, I know that the first of the non-tattoo cameras are going to off Hollywood, which are basically the first in line of the people outside red. So we consider ourselves like about, you know, two or three orders behind uh, off Hollywood. Yeah. Uh, but if off Hollywood didn't get a tattoo, then I hardly would have expected to get one. Um, <laughs> And and fair enough too. Like yeah. off, Toto, off Hollywood are a great company. Um, the point is though that that sort of is my nominal mental line in the sand between inside red and outside red, because obviously the off Hollywood boys aren't uh, employed by red, but they're yeah. obviously um, very good uh, early adopters for the company. So when something's moving from from there, you know, into their sort of zone, you would consider that to be, I guess. Uh, um, going into release, and so that means that what was tattoo is just a completely different idea. Um, now we know that those tattoo cameras have been shooting in places like New Zealand and other places doing tests. Um, so they're basically just the you know prototype uh, alpha cameras. The beta cameras are the next round. I think that um, whatever issues they had um, have been dealt with, and then they're just going to go into you know the production bills. I mean, I think one of the problems was Jace that the tattoos proved to be fiercely expensive hand builds and um and just if you understand what that means not you but you know one someone that's listening um like if you're doing like asic design or uh, chip design or even board design you can get one offs made uh really you know quite uh easily for rapid prototyping but mm. these tend to cost thousands and thousands of dollars per component and you use them you know as normally just for testing whether you've got stuff right you'll build a a small number and then test them and then obviously go into release but the unit price is several orders of magnitude um, higher but this custom one-off uh, stuff it's a bit like you know we talk about custom build and I think that makes people think that it's just their hand assembled or something but it's actually the the ASICs and the boards yeah the difference between having a car engine milled from on a CNC machine yeah. versus having then take moulds from that once you're happy and then start casting casting engine blocks and stuff and then having a hand built car versus you know the giving people the first 20 cars off the off the off the line so obviously these cameras are going to be heading to I guess Hobbit and some you know key which makes sense the, for Red the, the Get tattoos these, or the non-tattoos uh, the camera that were destined for tattoo, I guess these first Look, few I think they're going to production those, twelve are going to be on those on shows. Yeah, those those prototypes. I think they'll be used for testing and for demonstrating. Like for example, if somebody wanted to, um, I'm going to pick something that isn't in the lineup, so that we know that, like the new. Let's say you had a new James Bond film or something. I'm not saying this is just, yeah. but then you might say, well, we're interested in shooting with this next year, and so we want to have a look at these cameras now, and we understand that we'll get them, you know, when they come out. Mm. And so obviously Red would have a bunch of them that are in kind of permanent demo mode, effectively. Uh, I doubt they would go on to shooting any major features. They could, I guess, um, but I would imagine they'd keep them pretty close to home so they can keep showing them to different people. Yeah. Uh, there's more to be gained right now by being able to, you know, sit down with a Peter Jackson or a Fincher or whoever and show them stuff than there is, um, uh, yeah. you know, losing the cameras into some swamp somewhere. So I guess from now on, obviously, we're, they're just gathering bits and pieces to start major production run for Stage 2. So anyone who's in sign up for Stage 2, you uh, you keep your... Oh, it's too complicated. <laughs> yeah, look, I think it's... Keep your camera yeah. and you get um, the full epic sort of uh, uh, an expanded epic kit. 
Yeah, I, mean, I think that whole program is going to need a reboot because I think what was or is included and not included, I think we're going to need a mm. new clarification on all of that. Yeah, and things have changed, you know, with the SSDs and all that sort of stuff now being essentially standard. And, with... and quite frankly, let's not, let's not deny it. These are incredibly late. Mm. So the expectation of what would be when um, has changed now. Yeah. I mean, I'm not. They're incredibly complicated and incredibly ahead of, still ahead of the curve, even though they're three days. Yeah, three sure. Year, but but in terms of you know you're plotting out what you would get for what for what amount of money mm. that has all, you know, a lot of time has passed since they issued that. I would be stunned if they didn't revise that list. Yeah, I mean, definitely things have changed. As well, when said, they published the initial list, there were CF cards still involved. That's right. right. Yeah, exactly. So now SSD is going to be the standard. Uh, side module uh, to go with Epic and Scarlet, and if you want to still use CF cards, then I think they're making that CF to SSD adapter, um, so, so which all thing, makes sense. But the other thing that was announced was the Scarlet coming out before April. Yeah, which... I think this was not much of a huge announcement. I think it was just Jim just mentioned it in one of his posts that uh, someone said, "Look, I know I'm pushing my luck, but hey, what's the chance of seeing uh, uh, Scarlet uh, by April?" And basically, his one-word reply was before. So, theoretically, well, I mean, we've, we've, we've heard it before, but it would be, it's nice to imagine that uh, well, that'll be Super 35 uh, body-only Scarlet potentially before Not April. the two-thirds inch? No. No, I think the two-thirds inch and the, the lens included, I think, that's, I think that's a lot more complicated than, um, than the Super 35 body because obviously, essentially, apart from the body size, a the, the lot of that componentry you know, is essentially common to, to Epic. There's just more leaving stuff out than ex- extra stuff. So I think, you know, the whole touch focus thing, I think that, that is some seriously complicated stuff and, and the, the lens and having it all integrated into one machine. And, and obviously that's the, the, the body, one of the main bodies that was going to be the first off the, off the rank and the first coming out of the, um, the whole Foxconn or the first sort of mass-produced stuff that had its delays. So I, as far as I understand, Super 35 and potentially before April. So that was uh, that should be good. Sure, the other stuff that's uh, coming out is or has come out is a new Red Cine X. Now this is interesting because we have a new Red Color Two and Red Gamma Two, and um, I would say that this is um, evolutionary, not revolutionary, to use that hackneyed expression. I think this is a great refinement on what we've seen before, mm. um, and principally it takes it back a bit from being so punchy and makes our imagery look good and, and makes skin tones look good. And I think that it's a really good format to be shooting in or to be processing in for uh, skin tones and when you're going to be going into grading it later in um, a grading situation. Let's face it, most stuff that you shoot on red does get a grade. Because I think, I mean, the whole skin tone things has been, for, for those last few people that sort of hold back and say, oh, no, red's no good, it's the people who are hanging on to sort of slightly outdated views from our earlier builds like 14, you know, any, anything pre-16, 17. Um, and now really, literally with these last few clips and things we've seen, skin tones are just looking fabulous. So uh, there really is no sort of issues there in skin tones anymore. It, 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 was, it was in the past, but... So, uh, yeah, so that's really good. You can download that. And, of course, uh, as always, you'll, it's backwardly compatible, which is uh, brilliant. So you can reprocess your old footage. Yeah, go back and empty, open up your other stuff, and theoretically you should see the benefit, even though, obviously, the cameras, that footage may have been done with earlier builds. Now, just before we get on to the next thing, um, the Nikon. i am got various requests in for the... Um, for the new Nikon, you know, to have a look at it and test it. I don't think they're out in the wild, but there seems to be people... Some of them are out in the wild. Starting to. What is that, the D7? 
7,000. Yeah. yeah, 7,000. Yeah, which looks interesting. Yeah, I have seen a clip of it. I've seen a, a physical uh, clip from the thing. It looks pretty good. Uh, it looks like Jello is uh, a little bit under control, more under control than, than certainly like 5D Mark II. But literally that's the only thing I can conclude with a clip that I was sent that was basically taken, snuck out of a shot. Someone snuck a, a card into a camera on, uh, on uh, a, a photokina stand, I think, and um, managed to sneak some photo, footage away. But, uh, yeah, look, I mean, it's all, absolutely all valid. That has been one of the main things that's been holding people back for Nikon. It's like the D90, the incredible Jello has been... Yeah, it was and, and the um, And the Codex, I think they were sticking to... I'm trying to think what they were doing before. If, if, if the 7000 lives up to everything... Do you think it uh, is enough to cause people to, or have Nikon waited so long that people that are interested in video have gone to Canon and have glass and are unwilling to move back? I mean, how how much, um, I guess, um, volatility is there in a Nikon-Canon switch? Because it seems to me that there's quite a lot of stickiness. Once you're on one, you get stuck with glass. Yeah, well, I mean, I had a lot of Nikon glass and got rid of it before I moved to 5D. Um, so you'd really because... need something pretty major to move back, wouldn't you? Uh, oh, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think the other thing would be if I mean, if 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 the mounts and all that sort of stuff are a little bit more better, a little bit more compatible with um, earlier on, say with with Super Thirty Five, Epic or Scarlet, if if the mount, the first mounts to start rolling out for for those guys are going to be uh, more compatible to Nikon than say Nick and then the Canon, and the Canon stuff's going to take a while to roll out, then that's a compelling sort of reason to switch because a lot of people um, want to have glass for a DSLR they can you know go and shoot something fun with on the weekend and or home movies with and then put it on their epic to or scarlet on you know during the week so I mean I think I mean it's certainly it's basically the two main sort of bugbears for the Nikon side of things have been eliminated pretty much which was the incredible jello and I think the codec and they've changed both of those now so it's at least showing that they've got on board and they've they've changed things so there may be people who've been holding out and holding out who didn't particularly want to sell every single piece of their Nikon glass um and now Because Nikon's are actually a remarkably smaller company than Canon I mean, remarkably smaller. Yeah, you, you don't think of them as being. You think of them as being equal in SLRs, but when you add in Canon's entire other divisions in printers and mm. and everything else, Canon actually dwarfs Nikon as a company. Yeah, even though Nikon has obviously has large you know, medical imaging and their binoculars, all those other sort of optics. I could be wrong, but I but think you'll no, find it's like right. I'm, I'm, an order right. of magnitude smaller. Um, True. Okay, so let's shift now to our big news of the week, which is the uh, F3. So, Jason, um, why don't you set this up as to uh, what this camera actually is and what you did with it? Uh, yeah, look, I got approached by uh, Sony for uh, to have basically get hands-on for a few days with one of the only three sort of pre-production bodies in the world, which was which was you know was very 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 humbling. Thank you very much, guys, for letting me, giving me a chance to have a bit of a play. Uh, Scott Webster from uh, Sony New Zealand and Nick Bushner from um, Sony Australia. Uh, it was, you know, it was a really good opportunity to get my get my hands on. I thought, sure, I really on on the face of it, looked like a really, you know, interesting interesting new camera. And obviously, it flagged and it has continued to signal that uh, this thing that you know we've been saying for a while that that you know these big guys and Canon and these guys in terms of giving us a camera that's a bit more practical to use that these guys have not been listening that not, you know that basically. All the DSLR guys who've been screaming out for this kind of image quality that can has a lot more practical practicality to shoot with, um, 
that, that essentially all of their cries for something usable have sort of gone unheard. So, look, I think it, it, it definitely, the first thing about it is that it flags that, um, you know, Sony and, and the like are listening. So just to run through the specs on it, we're talking about a camera under 20 grand. It, its price is a little um, uh, soft because it doesn't come out till February, but also because it has interchangeable lenses, there is some regional question marks, whether you're in London, whether you're in LA, whether you're in Sydney, whether or not you would come with glass. And coming with glass is a big price factor because they're talking about making three PL mount uh, lenses, which are fixed lenses, which I think, Jason, are... Uh, tw- a 35, 50 and an 85 so they're basically going to sell two kits uh, a body only and then a body with the three prime lenses and uh, yeah so look there's various pricing from UK Europe and um, the US the, mm, I think the lowest I've seen is around about sort of 16, I think 16,000 US for body only and I think they're still um, establishing what those lenses are going to be but it's meant to be about the ballpark of about 6 grand or so for a kit of 3 so, you know, a little bit over 20 for body and, and lenses. So let's talk about it as 20 grand, but obviously um, understand that depending on the configuration that will change and your region that will change, of course. Mm. Um, the dollar fluctuates and I imagine a lot of stuff uh, that, that Sony does is uh, in US pricing. Okay, so we've got a camera that has a large uh, sensor in it, a PL uh, mount lens that's in front of that. And that large sensor is actually, Jace, well, about equivalent to a 7D. I mean, it's bigger than a red sensor. Yeah, essentially Super 35. It's literally within millimetres of the same size sensor as a, a red one. So it's only fractions of millimetres in it. And uh, so what we're going to get is a really nice shallow depth of field out of this camera. Um, but in many respects, I think that the body looks a lot like a, a Panasonic P2 type camera. It has XLR audio inputs. It has um, that kind of plastic body with uh, all the flip-out screens that you'd expect. It's not a modular clip-on type of a setup like an Epic is. It's certainly not uh, got wires hanging all off it like you might rig up with a RED, but then by the same token, you know, you don't have the advantage of an EVF and um, and that kind of stuff. Yeah. Um, but it's principally interesting, I think, also because it's completely tapeless. So we're going to either an SPS card, uh, which would be recording in an MPEG uh, type codec, which is going to be uh, 420. Yep. And that's um, that's interesting, and we'll come back to that, but it's it's a non-sort of line-dropping, skipping kind of... It's a proper... That's the main things with it, yeah, literally in terms of the visual side. I mean, obviously, a ton of the advantages are non-visual, you know, the practicality of actually physically shooting the thing. But uh, the main stuff is that literally they're starting with, I think it's about a 2.5K sensor, and then scaling down to uh, 1920 by 1080 output, uh, but doing that uh, with no line skipping, no dropping, no pixel binning, none of that sort of stuff, and getting it down there. So we literally saw no moiraing, no aliasing, any of that stuff. And and also uh, the other main, obviously, the, the bitch with DSLRs has been the rolling shutter. So literally... Um, just anecdotally, I'm seeing uh, rolling shutter that's equivalent to red or similar, but way beyond what we're used to with DSLRs. So those main sort of three visual things uh, have, have obviously completely changed, and um, well, the I rest think, is more. I, I sort say there of are a few production. others because there's also the ability to output raw, as in we can output uncompressed off this camera. Yes, so we've got a um, literally a 422 video output tap at the back, which can be then in in an optioned version of the camera, so it's not like it comes a standard, you can pick it either way, could actually be a dual output, which would then give you 444. So you can get 10-bit 422 
or 10-bit 444 output. And not only that, but this is really interesting, is if you think about a 12-bit linear sensor, which this is, it's kind of equivalent to 10-bit log normally is what we say in the industry. So Sony have actually got the S-Log option uh, coming, so you'd be able to output from that dual link 444 an S-Log 10-bit file. So that's going to give you pretty much everything the sensor's got. That 12-bit linear will be nicely translated and, and... fairly universally agreed to be equivalent to a 10-bit log file. Yeah. And that uh, Sony S-Log file is well understood as a format, and so um, that's going to give you a really clean signal for uh, grading. And then, of course, you'd need to record that to something, like a CineDeck or a, you could use a codex or some kind of external recording device. Um, but uh, uncompressed out is, is really interesting, I think. Yep. S-Log is really interesting. Yep. Um, and a, a couple of other things I think are interesting. When we talked about the line skipping thing... I th- don't see it as being as a bit of a problem at ninety twenty by ten eighty, but obviously exactly. when you go down to seven twenty on exactly. slow mo, it really grates exactly. with me. On I'll have the, to show uh, you some of these clips that we did with the um, uh, the anyone who's got a, a um, Canon one um, D. Uh, it's uh, I mean obviously the, the image quality is exactly the same ten eighty p as as the five d. When you go to seven twenty p, like I've said before, you can just see the, the aliasing and moiraing on even quite large lines not sort of fine fine you know herringbone lines is it becomes quite uh pronounced so whereas on the yeah. f3 when you go to the 720p mode for shooting say 60 frames a second slow-mo exactly the same deal. looks nice yeah no i mean that was one of the other awesome things was this uh it's got essentially like this s and q people who know who are used to the ex3 and ex1 uh, this is this is of no uh, no news to them at all but for me coming from you know more sort of film side and red side this button on the side is basically just this huge sort of jog shuttle thing. You just push it in and say, okay, I want to go off speed. And then you can just literally just dial it up. I want to go to 34 or 55 frames a second or whatever. Literally dial it up and hit go and, and literally you can, I mean, you can't ramp it once it's set and then you can roll. But uh, it was uh, really good to just jump on there and, and um, spin it down. And literally 720, the 720p looks fantastic and I've seen it in timelines cut in between 720p and 1080p and it you know cuts in really well and it's, I'm very impressed. Now, this is only one of two cameras that Sony announced, though, of course, we haven't had a chance to test the second camera because it's so new that it's, I don't think it's been in the wild yet, which is the NX Cam. Now, this is a $5,000 AVC HD large sensor uh, camera. So imagine for a second you've got a, a $20,000 kind of package on this F3, which is great. You've got a $5,000 option, still has a large sensor, but now recording at a at a more reduced codec um, but that being said, it's got a large sensor. Well, come on. yeah, look, it's it's got a super th- essentially same same size sensor, super thirty five sensor. What it doesn't have is PL mount. Obviously, it has this Sony E mount, which I think they first sort of started to introduce into stuff like the NEX five. Now, this little NEX five is a little tiny little point and shoot, but it's got super thirty five sensor in. It. And this is people have just leapt on this thing. You can go onto eBay and search for like E mount adapters. You will see literally because it's driven by this camera. There's um, Leica mounts, Minolta, Nikon, Canon. There, every pretty much every kind of lens you can get your hand on, you can get a mount and get an adapter to e-mount. So this is a really interesting step. Um, obviously, you know, people who are interested in this camera aren't interested necessarily in PL mounts. That's fine. Uh, literally, you want to have a. This is a sort of again another DSLR um, alternative um, to have the e-mount and be able to put uh, put Canon. Canon glass on it or Nikon glass on it and um, obviously I think 
being most of those mounts being non-electronic, uh, as soon as you put the lens on, it goes pretty much just a wide open anyway. Or you set it with the, the camera and then unbolt it, set it with a 5D, say, and then bolt it onto the mount and it stays where you set it. Uh, it um, so then, obviously, then put a very ND on the front and use that as your iris because obviously this is all about shallow depth of field, so, you know, shoot that way. The it has ABC HD has its codec which isn't doesn't entirely thrill me, but um, look like like the uh, the XD cam codec in, in the F3 I'm sure there's going to be some pretty amazing things come out of it. You and I were both pretty impressed with the the results and what that codec on the F3 could do. Yeah, well, what we've done is we've uh, done a lot of post-tests with it and green screen, compression, f-stop latitude, uh, keying, rolling shutter stuff, all of that, and that's all happening uh, in FXPHD. Um, but but I think that while we're here, like we should be talking about just what you've shot because we yeah. basically went down at dawn uh, to Narrabeen. Do you want to just discuss that, that, uh, that shoot? Because, I mean, it was... I had, a, I had a bloody ball. Yeah, like it was really good fun. I mean, that's literally what I've been doing for for my little sort of um, hobby for a while, going down to the sea pools and, and shooting. And it's just such a lovely space and such a nice place and amazing light. And, you know, uh, you just don't normally get up at that time of day. And it's really lovely just to see, even before dawn, if your cameras can start, as we're seeing now, cameras starting to capture quite happily stuff you know, pre-dawn and, and post-sunset. And it's just that once you get to that time of night, night or morning, it's just another quality. So literally we had a, uh, um, and a, a girl walking around, um, going for a swim, a bit of an interview. Because obviously what we wanted to try and do was, was um, create something that was literally not, you know, slider shots of fruit bowls or, uh, you know, close-ups of flowers Actually or, or whatever. Actually have people in the shots. Night shots. Yeah, let's have some people. And obviously part of one of the, the capabilities of this camera is the sync sound ability, the ability to just put XLR mics right into it. So I got... Um, a sound guy, Mario Pellegrino, who's a um, sound guy here in Sydney, to come and help us out, and he put his uh, mixer straight into the camera. So we recorded some sync sound, and then a mix of uh, overcranking 720p, early light, and literally just test Very test light. the crap out of it, and yeah. uh, and you know fire it straight into rising suns right down right down the middle of the lens. Uh, there's shots of uh, you know feet on hot backlit bleached white um floorboard you know like planks of wood and literally you know it seemed to handle everything really well at the very very high end of of, of the highs it seemed to you know obviously blow out but literally i think literally after a couple of days of playing with it i felt very comfortable with what it couldn't could and couldn't do it was very much sort of not necessarily relying on the um, histograms, just literally just looking at the viewfinder and really treating it like a DSLR for a while, because I could really sort of get to to sort of know and and I got quite comfortable, pretty much like the 5D. I can sort of know what it will handle, what it won't, what to avoid um, in terms of you know hot bright stuff. But this was really you know we threw everything at it in terms of dark and light and extremes of contrast. And in a bit of dialogue and everything, so we sort of we sort of you know wanted to make it um, 
uh, a really a really good you know thorough thorough test really this isn't about trying to necessarily make this camera look the best it can we just look hey let's go and shoot what we normally would and see what comes well yeah plus we threw it on steady cam we put it on car mounts we um true shook it and shaked it and did a couple of things of course a couple of sony people when they heard about it later to have to skip a beat because like there are three of these cameras in the world and they're like yeah yeah we're strapped on a car like you you, you what you what Chapter of car and driving out of the Harbour Bridge. Yeah, uh, yeah. the Opera House. And, yeah, no, it was all good. Um, and we yeah, shot no, it handheld and shot it... Yeah, look, handheld. Yeah. I could happily... Um, you know, we had it on, obviously, on a tripod with um, a 6.6 map box and filters and follow focus and everything. And then we also just had it in the hand, literally, with no sort of uh, handheld rigs. Literally, what was nice, obviously, it's got the nice big top handle on the top and it's got a flip-out LCD monitor. It has an, an EVF on the back, but we sort of ignore that most of the time pretty much because the LCD worked really well in, in, in the day. Um, some of the other stuff we really liked um, was it's got a peaking uh, function on the LCD. So even though the LCD is not massive, you could really you could tell the focus pretty easily with the peaking function, which basically puts a little sort of fine hairline around the sharp stuff. So even though you can't necessarily see it's exactly sharp, you you it, the camera indicates what's sharp. So just like you know guessing focus on DSLR, it's you know it's you've got to kind of got to feel get a feel for it. But we were using um, ultra primes and super speeds and um, uh, the main stuff I think we used was a 40mm ultra prime and then some, some all the kit of super the, speeds the steady cam we put the um Oh yes, we had the Duclos uh, yeah. eleven to sixteen mil as well, which was was you know, beautiful. Worked really well. I mean, it's those kinds of lenses that uh, it lends itself really well to. I have to say, it's a perfect weight for that Steadicam flyer. It's actually a better weight than a five D. That was the main thing with the camera when I picked it up because you look at the pictures of this thing and it looks really solid and it looks like it's carved out of a block of you know metal like the like an Epic or a Scarlet. But that's the first thing when you pick it up. This literally, this is a very light camera. Anyone who's used to like EX one, EX threes, essentially, this is almost like an EX3, EX1 with, uh, with, you know, with a PL mount on it. It's so, a very... so technically we're getting better pictures out of them. I mean, oh, we can see the difference. Absolutely. On... Yeah, look, that's sort of... I think the back end in terms of just the menus and the way it's kind of set yeah. up and the, the build quality is, is up there with the X3. But literally, I think if you put a, just a... Not a 1.2, but just a look, a fast 50 on a 5D Mark II, that's about the weight of the body. It's really... Maybe even less. I think it's um, actually quite... Light. I don't think the specs of the weight are out there, which is... That was the first thing, picking up going, oh, my crap, this is generally the lens we put on the camera was the heaviest part of the thing. It was um, so I don't think this is entirely suited to like a full master primes and stuff unless you're supporting all these lenses because the lens is definitely it's going to get start to get to the point where you actually want to just bolt the camera onto the lens versus the lens on the camera. It's a very light, um, you know, a very light camera. So it was really well suited to nice, nice light little uh, super speeds and the smaller, lighter things like the ultra ultra primes. Um, so. Mm, interesting. Well, now, if you want to see Jason's work, um, there is a trailer uh, up on his uh, Vimeo site. So that's, well, do you want to give the address? Yeah, it's um, vimeo.com slash channels, I think, slash cpool. Yep, is that correct? Uh, plural yeah. channels yep. and so. slash cpool. And I've got to say, Jason, I, and I tweeted this during the week, you're one day on earth. Uh, we discussed this when you did one day on earth, but I just... You know, I was looking at it again during the week, and I tweeted this. I just think your one day on Earth clip, which wasn't shot obviously with this camera, it was shot with no, a 5D. 5D, is just so frigging good. Um, and honestly, like it's it's really really nice, and and better in some respects, if I can say better, I don't know if that's the right word, but certainly more engaging 
um, than some of your earlier sepals, only because there's some really nice face work in it's it. It's people. Some people, yeah. It's people. That's to what. camera. And uh, so anyway, that's One Day on Earth. And that was... Now, what, what I mentioned that is because that was shot all on 5D and 1D? 5D and 1D. Okay, yeah. so not that you set it up this way, but the new trailer for the F3... Um, does that have a name? That... Yes, it's called Compulsion. Compulsion, thank Just you. Just a, tra- a trailer. The, the, give the quick backstory to what we're going to do is obviously we've, we've cut a shorter version to go onto Vimeo and to go out and to be out now uh, because obviously the um, Sony US has launched their footage through SoCal and the UK have got some footage up as well. So we, got, we thought we'd get that out and then the rest of the footage um, can be seen at um, uh, live Sony events later on. Uh, in the Australia and, and New Zealand later on in the month, uh, and I'll give a URL to those um, later on at the end of the show. But um, then there'll be like you know a three or four minute longer version. But we thought we'd get a, a teaser out for the moment while there are all the rest of the footage is out. Uh, but uh, I mean, obviously, to do so one to day on that, Earth and. and- and that's your stuff. And then the stuff that we shot, the rolling shutter, keying, compression, latitude stuff, that's all going to be exactly. with, with some of your footage from obviously Down by the Water is yes. all over in fxphd.com. Yeah, and that's where we really sort of get stuck into it, looking at the rolling shutter, comparing it to 5D, you know, over underexposure tests Because my like stuff that. is all technical and very <laughs> dull and boring and horribly um, just horribly lit in comparison to your gorgeous footage. But, I mean, I, 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 I just got to say... Just as a complete rat hole aside, is it just not the case that whenever you get up at dawn, you just say, why don't I get up at dawn every morning? Yeah. It was yeah. so magnificent. Isn't it nice? Yeah. I, I mean, at any of those calls, but you just kind of, you just kind of, yeah, mentally, you're just going to this completely other other place, especially down there. Just want to, every time I go down there, you just kind of sit down and you go, I really just want to move here. I literally just want to just, you know, And because move of our in. national geography, these pools uh, face the sun up. So what literally happens, obviously, depending on around the world, that may not be the case. On the, east the wrong side, side of the, of, uh, of a country. But seaboard. yeah, so on our eastern seaboard, you're down at this pool. You've got the ocean basically looking over to Hawaii, um, clear as, as anything. It's, uh, and then you've got these lovely uh, sea pools which are filled by the water. Uh, as we mentioned earlier, they're, they're literally pools with seawater in them uh, with waves splashing over into where the swimmers are. And the sun comes up you know, directly on the other side. So they are naturally photographically interesting. But I've got to say just personally, it's, you know... I mean, it really is just worth getting up. Mm. Whether you're using an SLR, an F3, a RED, I, I don't care what you're using. Because they just love that. I mean, these cameras love this light. They just, oh. They're perfectly capable of doing some, you know, some gorgeous uh, uh, images at that time of night, time of day. You don't need the sun up. You can totally understand those. You know, you had to go to the beach car parks and there's those guys that look like they really do live in their combis or whatever. You can, I can completely... I can, I, can, I can understand... I can understand the attraction. I don't really want to get in the water because it's freaking freezing, but I quite like, you know, wow. just sitting there and being there and watching other people get cold. Yeah. Yeah. But anyway, so, I, I think um, I think that it was really interesting. I think Tom... But if you look at... Sorry, if you look at like One Day, one day, on, uh, one day on Earth stuff, I yes. mean, that's 1D... Uh, I need the 1D to get me down to 60 frames a second. And far, part of the lovely stuff is... I mean, I don't want everything... Now that we're going to get Epic and Scarlet and, you know, slow-mo becomes the thing. I don't want... I don't know. I'm going to try and resist it as well. Um, not doing every bloody thing in slow motion, but uh, slow motion, you know, you just can't open. help it. It's just, it's just so compelling, and the images are so gorgeous. But I needed two cameras to get that in a way to, 
Um, well, I didn't really need two cameras, but I mean, 5D to um, as my main camera. But if I wanted to go slow mo, then I needed the 1D uh, to do that. But then obviously there's the aliasing issues. I then also needed to record interviews that day as well. There's there's sound, so that was all recorded on a the outboard Tascam thing with pluralizing it together. And the pluralize didn't really work very well because the onboard camera's picking up so much surf noise that it couldn't sync. So I had to do it all manually anyway. Um, so the aliasing issues. Um, so literally it was quite nice to, it was really nice to take the F3 and go and sort of do this and have all the options from from you know sync to slow-mo all in one camera literally with the press of button between the two of them and then be able to do sync sound and so yeah look I, I don't want to I don't want to get too carried away with this but I've got no. to say like the thing is for me that there are and I don't I can sound bitchy or anything but there are a couple of people out there that uh <laughs> comment on stuff and do stuff and you say really when was the last time you actually shot anything and yeah. I, no, honestly I mean it's your opinion on this stuff if anyone listens to this show you absolutely got to go look at Jason's Vimeo page because you just sort of see the kind of work that he does and uh, and it's great I mean you do re- it's, but it's completely different to anything I've ever done before because you know I'm literally well, my, my yeah. normal work sort of stuff is like two people talking in the kitchen with a breakfast cereal bowl between. you say that but your short films being Finished yes, as we speak, the is. last seconds of it are being um, put to uh, excellent for uh, Sundance and stuff. So excellent. You know, it's not like you haven't. Yeah. No, no, no. True. You, you're a modest guy. Sure, Jess. sure, sure. But um, uh, I mean, anyway, what, so that's uh, got the, the F3 stuff there. The the one D, five D, one day on Earth thing, which I totally recommend to people. And and then a, a link to the Australian Tourist Commission so that you can move <laughs> down. What <laughs> so. you should do, yeah, I tell you. No, that's the other one thing. When I started doing this whole seapool thing, it was what makes me want to, what made me want to do more was that a lot of the international comments were people like, "Wow, I've never heard of this kind of thing before," and you realise how reasonably, within a couple, apart from a couple of instances, how unique these pools are to 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 Australia. So they really feel like they're a bit of a part of our, our culture. Because um, obviously, yeah, we've touched on it before, but you know, but not everybody had a, a pool in their backyard in the 30s, 40s, you know, 50s when these things were really popular, and then that was sort of started it all off. And then every suburb got one. Basically, it was the little neighbourhood hang. So that's where a lot of you know people learned to swim. Yep, I, I learned to swim at Taramara Pool Centre. Did you? Yep. Or Pimble Pool. Pimble Pool. Yes. Carlisle. What's it? I can't remember what his first name was. Something Carlisle's Swimming School at. Pimble. It was like um, it was like everybody went there. It was like absolutely everybody went there. Yeah, all the school carnivals go yeah, there. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. Um, okay, so that's that's it. Um, so look, than... I also want to just say that you know I haven't been paid to do this. I was just given the camera for free. Went to do this for fun. I'm not being paid to go and do any presentations. I just want to sort of say that this is you know without. Um, um, well, actually, well, we're on actually that. no, they bought us, the they grading. brought us banana bread oh. and coffee on the shoot. That was nice. <laughs> but that was that. But that was limit of the and paid uh, your parking fine. That, yes. Um, did did you want to mention anything about grading? Because this is graded. This at the moment, this this first stuff that goes out on Vimeo has been literally graded just on uh, on my Mac by me, just with uh, Magic Bullet looks. The stuff that when we go to the the, the the longer version will be graded on base light at frame set match here in Sydney. So that'll be have a, a more intense grade and a lot a lot better. <laughs> a, a lot because it's longer, it's got a little bit more needs a little bit more continuity in the grade, which is almost which is almost the hardest thing with with anything with sun going up and down the various light around there. We just want to have a bit more consistency. So we'll be going into base light more, as much as anything. Also, just to see what. What we can get out of this uh, footage in 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 baseline and see what see what's there, because I'm already I mean as I say get, touching back to the codec, 
because when, when, when stuff like this comes out and you, you, the immediate thing is to look at, oh, well, 35 megabits a second, well, that's going to be shit because 5D Mark II is already like 48 megabits or so per second. Uh, one must be better than the other. But literally, and as you and I have sort of started to dig through it immediately, can see that the footage is, uh, there's really, if you start, you don't have to look too hard in 5D footage to start to see blocks and, you know, um, artifacts and, and aliasing and stuff. But I, I'm literally looking around on some of this footage. There's really very little noise. I can't really see any major sort of artifacts and blocks and stuff. So it's very interesting what uh, is capable on a lower bit rate with an, I guess you could say it's an older codec, you know, MPEG-2 essentially. It's quite interesting to see what's capable with a lower bit rate with, you know, away from H.264. Yeah. I know what you're going to say next, Mike. I was just going to do an aside just because, you know, people that listen to this show know that um, that you have a slight uh, penchant for depth, depth uh, field. shallow depth of field. And um, there is an awesome clip on Vimeo that I just happened to... Um, Wanted to flag. It's got nothing to do with this. Moving on from the F3. Yeah, moving away, um, really away so, from any camera whatsoever. Yes. So uh, Vimeo slash one five six three zero five one seven. So five one five six three zero five one seven. Or right. just do a search on above everything else in Vimeo. Um, so this is uh, a plug, I guess, inadvertently because we've you know, got an interview coming up with uh, Alex, who's um, behind this and uh, from. Um, Certain third and seventh and and third seventh dot com and uh, and I I just flagged this to Jace yesterday and I just want to mention it now because we've got an interview coming up with it so I I can't I haven't done that interview yet the thing about this is look at it because it's gorgeous and then just hit yourself around the head when I tell you that it's CG because it com- is apart from I think only the imagery out the window of the kitchen at the very end is. Because the yeah, kitchen's probably yes. all CG. It's yes. just probably the plate out the back of the window. Literally, yes. one background window plate is. Well, I mean, we haven't done is, the interview. Yet. We believe That's what we is, understand is, it to be. Yeah. But we understand it to be. Now, if anyone who's seen his uh, previous work, which I think is called uh, what's it called? What's the name of the company? Um, third seventh. It was called the third and seventh, wasn't it? Mm-hmm. The original one, where which is a lot of amazing architecture and got all these books pyrotechnically flying out of bookcases and. Well, uh, not pyrotechnically. Well. <laughs> Again, all CGI. But uh, when I first, when I played, I played this um, above everything else to my wife uh, last night, and I said, "Okay, watch the whole thing through, and then I'll tell you something about it." Um, and I actually, having seen third and seventh, she said, "It's not real, is it?" And I said, "No." And she said, "Well, you're out of a job, aren't you?" <laughs> That's my point. You said it, Jason. It's like, why are we worrying about these cameras so much? Why are we worrying about these bloody cameras when you can create that? Obviously, this this requires a monk like patience to sit of, in a dark room for a, a few months. months. Well, we'll talk to Alex about that. Um, but it week. is utterly, utterly stunning. Yeah, and just. Again, you just want to just go cry in the corner because it's just beautiful. Yes. We anyway. wanted to talk to Alex uh, around the time of the 3rd and the 7th because it's so superb, but um, we didn't, but for whatever reason. But the interesting thing is he then put up um, some compositing reels, like a compositing breakdown. So if yeah. you go to the that is the one that I, the Vimeo site I told you about, over to the right in the, you know, more stuff by Alex thing, you'll find a thing that says compositing breakdown. And if you're in any doubt that what you're looking at is uh, is all faked out and it's actually shot live action, just watch that compositing breakdown from his previous film because um, it just shows you like all these shots. You go, well, that's obviously... Oh, no, it isn't. That's, yeah. 
Oh, no, it isn't. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's impressive. So, uh, yeah. And, and, you know, but I've got to say, uh, really a key point of why this stuff looks so darn good is its uh, depth of field. I mean, one of the reasons why some of this stuff looks so filmic. But also the imperfections, you know, oh, putting, imperfections, putting imperfections so. in there. There's, there's um, floating particles, dust in the air, fragments of things as they shatter, um, you know, um, chromatic aberration and uh, pulses in light as the, cam- as the camera ramps, the camera ramps up and down. So spend a lot of time studying, you know, light and the way it, way it works and how reality is perceived. And, and it's got a really and, good grade uh, on it. Yeah, and it's, it's, be- it's utterly... <laughs> Stop playing it. <laughs> anyway, uh, that's our rat insane. hole. Um, okay, well, let's go to the Red Room now, and we're going to uh, follow up, as I said, on this interview we did, uh, well, discussion we had following um, IBC. The press release came out about Marvin. I was a bit sceptical. Um, so I took, it on the, I took one for the team, and I said, well, yes, if you, um, if you work for the guys, please contact us, and they did. And so here we go. So uh, we were discussing uh, Marvin on... Red Center, and I think from what I understand, you think we might have got the wrong end of the stick. So yes. I was just wondering if you could uh, uh, turn me around, tell me why it is that uh, and how it works. Well, the thing is, um, Marvin, uh, as I heard on your uh, end, it, it incorporates a lot of wires and stuff, but it doesn't at all. So it was underneath something else, I guess, in the band pro stand. And in general, it's a very simple... Uh, machine. It's a kind of a black box that does what you want it to do. And the only wire is an Ethernet cable, apart from the power cable, um, connected to your laptop. That's about it. I mean, if you, uh, you control my Marvin over the Ethernet with your browser, there's a kind of a user interface. If you, correct, if you type in the correct URL in your browser, then you connect to Marvin, and Marvin is a kind of a stupid machine that does what you want, what you wanted to do. So it, in general, it um, when you start up Marvin for a new project, what you make is project settings. Um, which cameras will be using? Um, will you be using in your feature or whatever film you're shooting? Um, and then. What do you want Marvin to do? If you want Marvin to make one LTO copy, three, four, or five, or two LTO copies, uh, because there are two LTO drives in Marvin, do you want Marvin to make um, QuickTime files? What kind of QuickTime files do you want? Do you want Marvin to make QuickTime files in the MXF format, or do you want it in the Final Cut Pro format? Do you want Marvin to uh, uh, wait for you to load a, a lookup table? Uh, to make these quick times. Do you want um, DVDs at the end of the day, shooting day, with time code in the frame? Do you want DVDs with no time code in the frame? So it does all these things when you have the correct password for the project settings automated. It's like a washing machine. So uh, let me just understand that correctly. Like all the component parts of Marvin... um, uh, the shot logging, ver- the LTO, and obviously verifying those LTOs. Um, then you can also... There's a DVD burner in there, is that right? Yes. 
And then, of course, you can generate uh, offline QuickTimes. So, yes. so what is the proprietary stuff that you're doing other than obviously uh, integrating that into a, uh, a, a relatively, <laughs> relatively contained and wireless uh, enclosure? Like, wh- where is the IP? Where is the um, smarts, as it were? Okay. Um, so, what I think goes wrong all the time on the set is when people uh, connect separate stuff with separate wiring and separate ideas. Everybody, every DIT, oops, sorry about that. Every ID, every DIT has its his own ideas how to do this. And what I wanted to make is a machine that does it for you uh, without uh, human. Uh, faults or human mistakes in there. But there's a bigger idea in Marvin. I'll try to explain. Because if you have Marvin on set, what you do is once you've shot either Alexa or whatever, Red or Phantom for that matter, what you have is a um, portable um, uh, storage thing. So if you hook up this portable storage thing to Marvin... Um, it'll just ingest what you've shot and it'll treat these files as um, the way you want Marvin to treat these files. So if you want Marvin to make MXF uh, QuickTime files, uh, it'll make these files for you with a lot or without a lot, automated. Um, The whole idea is that a DIT cannot ruin the process, if you know, human fail, uh, human mistakes I wanted to take out. Also, what I wanted to take out is that if there's a hard disk, uh, you normally, what they do is with R3D data manager or whatever, they save data on two separate hard drives. But in general, these separate hard drives are carried in the same car to the post-production or whatever. If something happens to these drives, everything is gone. So I wanted to generate a 10-year, 30-year safety on the set. But it carries on because the whole idea is that once you've made these LTO tapes on the set, I want people to treat them as master tapes rather than backup tapes. So what we've designed is a Marvin in post where you load an EDL in Marvin and Marvin will just filter out shot names and will ask for tapes and do a kind of a pre-conform for you. It will restore the original files with the original metadata from the tape to whatever location you want to. So, um, well... The whole idea of Marvin okay, is so, a kind of a closed loop, if you know what I mean. Yeah. Okay. So I, I, I and I understand that that is a completely valid workflow. I guess my concern would be that if you're using LTO tapes more in an online than offline, more in a uh, primary master format instead of a archive format, then for many people you've turned a tapeless workflow into a tape workflow again because for example imagine that i don't do duplicate hard drives and i don't um uh, set up cloned copies and stuff 
mm-hmm. on spinning media at the mm-hmm. workstation level. I'm just running it out to the uh, verified LTOs. I understand that's very secure, obviously, very, very secure. But the trouble is, three days later, when the director says, can we pull up the shots from from three days ago, an LTO is not a particularly fast way to be able to bring up a shot because well, you have is, to... this is changing. I agree with you that what we do in, in Marvin is keep um, on the internal RAID uh, 12 terabytes of accessible data. So if the director three days later wants to access his data, it's there. Even more so because on your laptop with which you control Marvin, you can upload anything that is on in the database. So if you want to see the original camera files or the QuickTimes or the MPEGs it makes or even the thumbnails it makes, you can upload them, or the DVD ISOs even. You can upload them to your laptop and have a look immediately. So let me let me ask you this then: How are you writing out to the LTOs? How proprietary is that? Because if I pop the LTOs and then send them to across the country, is the other end have to have a Marvin, or can no. they read that? So what's no. the file format going to the LTO? The file format going to LTO is. Um, uh, based on an SDK made by the American company Barracudaware, and it's called um, uh, Yosemite. It's now, does that does that have an index that, that only has a everything. text, but it has a text only index, doesn't it? it? Doesn't have any kind of visual index. Not In other ca- words, no, like- no, no. But our database, the database we make, which is the Marvin in Post software, you can. Um, uh, uh, install in any um, server wherever okay, so you if, are. Yeah. So I'm on I'm on set and I own the Marvin because I'm the DIT and I've been uh, bidding. I bid this job. I've got the job. I'm on set. I'm using this system. I'm sending it to two different facilities, neither of which obviously have worked with Marvin before. They can just download that software and then get a copy exactly. of the database. Exactly. They can then take the LTOs and then access that in. Okay. Exactly. I think I think that. Um, I think you're right. I don't think I fully understood what you were doing. But I think that uh, the 12 terabytes on set is a key component to that working because without that uh, large buffer, um, you wouldn't have the read-write access speed that you'd want to respond to director requirements. So, Well, the thing is, I I don't entirely agree with you. The thing is, what Marvin does, it makes these QuickTime files for you. Once, you know, it has succeeded in making this QuickTime, there's 99.9 security that the original file is okay because Marvin was able to make this QuickTime file. And I can can give you examples because I've been using it on my television series uh, Mm -hmm. for uh, an 80-day shoot. When Marvin says, this QuickTime I cannot make, then there's something corrupt in the file. So now what we've made in Marvin is that it'll flag the file. Not only it'll do that, but it'll also, when there is a corrupt file, it'll make a green, corrupt frame. It'll make it green, this frame. And when there's a uh, really corrupt frame, it'll make it red. So when you look at this file, you know, you're a DIT. So Marvin is working 
And all of a sudden, there pops up a file, QuickTime file, with a flag. You say, okay, let's have a look at it. Okay, so there's a dropped frame. That's green. Okay, we can deal with dropped frames because we've seen that before. It's only the one frame that doesn't work. But now there's a corrupt frame that's flagged red. Okay, now we have to reshoot. This is happening on the set. So 10 minutes after you've been shooting this shot, you'll see if there's a corrupt thing in your file. And this has saved my ass for over the past half year loads of times so that I could see something went wrong with the file so I can reshoot immediately. So the, I think for Marvin, because we have uh, the whole general idea is you can offload your camera files to an external disk at the same time you offload it to the internal RAID, these 12 terabytes. So in general, what I did is I hooked up two eSATA drives, one for the QuickTimes, one for the um, camera files as a fourth copy in the meantime, because you have the internal RAID, you have two LTOs, you have the fourth copy, the uh, eSATA drive. So these are the camera files. But once these, I mean, wherever you look, if this uh, red flag comes up, you're bound to be reshooting this shot because in all these original files, you'll see that there's a corrupt frame. So I think Marvin is much more than just a safety tool. It does, once it notices when there's something wrong with your shot, something you cannot even see in 2K or whatever, because it's only visible in 4K. That's why Marvin also makes thumbnails in 4K, so that you can, well, yeah? I, I agree, that sounds really good. So let me ask you one other question. So that, that process assumes, obviously, that you have the ability to take in and transcode from whatever the, the raw files are that are coming in to, obviously, the QuickTimes, and that that is happening, I presume, through your proprietary software. No. Um, no? So no. you're running internally Redline and, I mean, what no. are you doing about... No? No, okay. I, it, no? Internally, there's two options you can choose. Inter if you want only Red, we have a, f a foolproof Red system based on the SDK. <coughs> if you want to use multi-camera, we have a foolproof system that uses MetaRender from Iridash. Um, this is a, a, a command line utility um, from Iridash that um, decodes all kinds of cameras. So if you want to decode Phantom along with RED and Alexa and all make it into a DNX HD uh, offline file, you can start a project with these three cameras as the main cameras, uh, define a project frame rate. This is kind of important because we want, if you do overcranking or undercranking, we need to be able to recalculate the time code to the correct frame rates for so the EDL can find, in the end, can find the correct uh, frames for the correct shot. So um, you can define uh, with MetaRender, I want to use Phantom for, if if I connect a phantom file, Marvin will automatically uh, see that it's phantom. It'll hook it up to the uh, project frame rate and will calculate a new time code. If you shot at a thousand frames 
um, it'll start at zero and it'll recalculate to whatever frames you've had, you know. And together with the shot name, this is a unique time code. So if you have an EDL in the end, when you do the QuickTime editing, it'll be able to find the file. And um, you can start with the original again. Well, it, it does seem like you've uh, got a more comprehensive system than I thought. Now, where is it being used in production? You said it's being used, uh, obviously you're using it, but where is it being used um well, okay, Generally. we are a young company. We uh, now have BandPro as our uh, reseller in the United States and in Germany. We have an Indian reseller, a Swedish reseller, an Italian reseller, and we're building up the company. So all over the place, they're starting to use this system. Of course, there's skepticism all over the place because there's too many stuff around. But I tried to design this thing as a... Uh, kind of an end solution for uh, DITs. What we are busy with, I, I, just let me try to set up, to explain you our, our uh, future. What I think will happen, and you might disagree, but I think tape will take over uh, again. Uh, hard disks, just because tape will last for 30 years and hard disks won't until there is enough SSD capacity to just put it on the shelf, and, and that's cheap enough to keep the flash memory on the shelf. Until then, um, uh, tape is the, the solution. If you look at LTO5, it's so fast that it is almost there that you can press a button and see the image. So I think the next step in... Well, so, okay, okay, so my only thing, sorry, I don't want to sound argumentative, but I will. Um, my only problem is, uh, there's two problems with what you just said. Firstly, yes, LTO5 is great, though obviously a lot of the world is still LTO4. Um, and but this some is agnostic. LTO3, uh, Marvin is but, agnostic. Uh, sure, but the other thing is that, well, it's agnostic to a point. Like, obviously, uh, the whole point of LTO is that it reads two back and writes one, right? So... If I'm on LTO three, you can't write LTO three from an LTO five. You can read LTO three in an LTO five, but but that's the whole idea. That's why it's but, future proof. Okay, but but my other point is this: that it's the point in the in the process where you go to LTO because the current workflow, as I'm sure you're aware, is that you would keep the media in a more um, hard drive format using RAID technology up until a point that you were archiving a project and then what tends to happen is you stick a robot on the end of your uh, RAID and so you are moving from basically online to nearline and you use the LTO for nearline and then obviously at some point you stop having it nearline you actually archive it completely and stick it on the shelf. Yeah. And so in, in my facility... But yeah, in but my facility, know, for example, but hang on, but just in my facility, for example, the only place that there's an LTO robot is hanging off that end server. So yeah, I want to change. Why do you say that you okay? But when you say you just hit a button and it's there, that assumes that that LTO tape is in the machine and loaded in the Marvin box. And I'm just saying no, that. No, 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 not at no, all. Okay. No. Well, okay. No, no not at all. Uh, what I, I want to, uh, to explain is that w what we are busy with is to make uh, a closed loop so that if you have a robot uh, with the, that, that, like I do in my facility, that can hold yep. 40, 40 tapes. Yep, that's all. 
Okay, so I have a robot that holds 40 tapes. If I have a shoot of 40 days, I just put all the tapes in my robot, start fire up Marvin Imposed, the software, load up the database from the onset, and I press a button restore to whatever location, and it'll restore at whatever speed the LTO <laughs> carousel is to whatever location you have in your facility. So you'll save up 90% of hard disk space. The whole idea is that uh, your uh, facility has, say, 40 terabytes of hard disk, and it's always a fight. Uh, where do... Okay, so now I need uh, 12 terabytes for this project. Now I need 20 terabytes for that project. Oh, all of a sudden we're out of hard disk space. What do we do? My whole idea was that if you make with Marvin on the set, these tapes, whether it's Altio 3, 4, or 5, or 10 for that matter, or SSD for that matter, because it's agnostic for that. If you do that, you are bound, uh, my idea is that you're able to restore from an EDL only the shots you've used from the tapes you've made on the set to any location. So. It's kind of a pre-conform that does it for you, automated after, way, I mean, six months after you've shot your television series or your feature film because you've been editing too long and the producers is mad. <laughs> well, I, I, as I say, I fully acknowledge that it's a valid workflow. Um, and thank you so much for taking time to put us straight. <laughs> I apologize. Uh, I, I did, as I said, uh, I think afterwards that uh, I had gone twice to the band pro booth to try and get a reading on Marvin and in the end the only thing I could get was somebody that pointed at a, at a, at a cart and said that's Marvin and so that's okay, what I got. Okay. Um, I can imagine but, because uh, there was all kinds of, of struggle with uh, band pro to get the machine there or there was some all kinds of stupid stuff going on and I can imagine there's something that went wrong but this isn't uh, what you told <laughs> was not... <laughs> entirely the correct idea we had with with Marvin. That's sure. Well, so the only other thing is if somebody wants to go and look at Marvin on a website, what's the URL they should go to? Marvintech.com. M-A-R-V-I-N-T-E-C-H.com. Great. Well, thank you so much for taking time to talk to us. We really appreciate it. Okay. I hope you'll be a user in the future. <laughs> Thanks so much. Okay. Cheers. Bye. Bye-bye. Well, thanks for that, guys. Thanks for that, Marvin Chaps. Good to um, good to clear the air there. And thanks for Eric for setting that up. Hey, um, you said you'd give us that uh, link um, for your Sony thing, right? Yes. Okay. So go to sony.com.au/pmwf3 is the URL for at least registering because dates are still being formulated. But uh, at least you can go there and register your interest for. Um, so obviously, we'll show the film a little this bit is more your in road depth. Show. My roadshow, Sony's roadshow. Going, going on tour. Yeah, that I'm going to. Have you got a rider? Do you only have like no. Oh, no wait, red. they wait. They won't know what hits them when they get my rider. No red M and M's. These sandwiches, they don't fold over. It's ridiculous. Well, what if you just took two bits of bread? <laughs> Sorry. Um, yes. Yeah. So and, uh, yes. Go. And we want to do a Twitter shout out. Um, uh, yeah, actually, also because of their uh, help for us for this uh, shoot. 
um, is to um, Matt Raymond at uh, Rocket Rentals in, in New Zealand. That's Matt. Uh, that's uh, Matt underscore. Hang on. No, it's Rocket underscore Matt, and it's Matt. Isn't it Matt Redmond, not Raymond? Should we just cut that bit out? No, no. Thanks, Matt. That's okay. Matt, Matt you just know him as Rocket Matt, right? Rocket yeah. underscore Matt. Rocket underscore Matt. I just Matt. happen to know him as so Matthew right. Redmond. Yeah. Yeah. But there you go. Yeah, and, that um, holds sort of. Rocket someone. Rentals in New Zealand, great company. Yes, because when they um, when uh, Scott came out from New Zealand for the uh, shoot here for the F three, um, we got the Duclos lenses and some other bits and pieces came over from those guys for us to test and play with. So, thank you very much uh, to those guys for lending us bits and pieces. Also, actually, a quick shout out to uh, Viv at Red uh, Red Apple Camera Rentals in Sydney as well because we got a lot of other lenses and gear from him. He was extremely generous lending us. Uh, lending us um, a lot of very expensive glass and map boxes and filters and things to go with the kit. So, again, thank you, Viv. He's a gentleman in the industry. If you need red rentals in Sydney, uh, red apples rentals, that's the dudes. Um, lovely people. Thank you, Viv. Um, so what are you up to coming up? Uh, what am I got coming up? Uh, some sitting on my butt, actually. I'm looking forward to it for a change. Uh, I've got to uh, keep going and cutting and grading the rest of this uh, footage. And uh, I think actually I'm I'm clear for a bit, um, sitting on my bum. Hopefully, I actually got to start. Um, I've, got, I've got some gardening. What about you? Well, you, you might be gardening leave. I'm having insanely mega fun next week. Nothing um, stops in FXPHD world. No, no. If last week was F3, next week we are stereoscopically arring. In other words, we're going to get a couple of Alexas. Strap them together, a bit of gaffer tape, and um, shoot stereoscopically with, uh, interestingly, the Codex boxes, which oh, yeah. are the um, uh, incredibly cool, very powerful uh, recording devices. Yeah, for the NAP. And not only that, but we're going to be doing it with ARRI RAW because we're exploring the ARRI RAW workflow. Right. Uh, so we'll go RAW, dual off um, the stereoscopic ARRIs into uh, Codex, and we'll be shooting that in the Element Technica rig, and we'll be doing some green screen tests, oh, awesome. and doing some other cool stuff. Excellent. <laughs> Going to have fun, and we get to work with Richard Gibson, who, as you know, is an incredibly Excellent. Excellent. Uh, good A-grade Sydney director. Worldwide director, yes, indeed. Yeah. Well, yeah, I mean, he's based in Sydney, but yeah, he obviously works internationally. But I mean, good I... Good on him. I, 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 have, I hope he's not listening to this, because I remember when he I was an Inferno artist, I would have killed to have one of his jobs come in. I would have, like, I would have crawled across... Uh, broken glass to get him in my flame suite just to do one of his jobs because yeah. it was almost a guarantee I was going to win an award. Yeah, he's a um, very visual, very visual guy, very creative. And uh, yes, so um, so we went over at their place uh, in pre-production. They're, they're great. Uh, we're doing some really fun stuff. Um, it's uh, all part of some stuff that's coming up obviously cool. next the, year. The Arri Raw is not really out yet, is that it's right? It's not. As a codex boxes, it's are they not. out? Yeah, they're not out yet either. <laughs> so do you need two codex boxes? Well, let's not. Let's not just give everything away now, okay. Jason. Right, just wait okay. until we've done it. Oh, that sounds very interesting. Excellent. I may pop in. Yes. Well, you're, you're very welcome. If Richard's, uh, if Richard's um, happy with his set, of course. But yes, absolutely. Um, and anyway, so we'll report on that um, in due oh, course. Yep. Cool. Get back to you. We're very interested in doing too. stereo workflows. Um, and, you know, we've shot a lot of stereo now with mm. different cameras and different rigs. But yep. it's the workflow that obviously interests us as it does for the F3. 
But having said that, it's fun to play with uh, toys. And I've got to thank um, in advance the guys because uh, we a lot of people are coming together to make this work, especially the Australian uh, Cinematographer Society and the Australian VES who are both um, part of this. So it's all good. No, it's good because everyone wants to get involved, get looking at footage, helping um, getting their hands on 3D rigs to be able to say that they have done it and just a bit, you know, for the experience because it's, you know, it's not really going away. No, but, but even if even if you were to take the stereo equation out of it, I'd be happy to be shooting with Ari Raw on yeah. Alexa's to have a look at that. So, um, yes. Although I've got to say, actually, to that point, because um, Re- uh, Viva Red Apple's got a couple, he's got uh, two um, Alexas now, and he's got another third one on the on the way. He literally, they have not. He hasn't had a chance to play with them. They have not stayed on the shelf. They've been out pretty much every day. This is just shooting to the uh, um, uh, ProRes, you know, very, very happy. Hundreds and hundreds of commercials have been shooting ProRes now with Alexa and Faultless, so it's impressive. Mm-hmm. Alexa, Latitude. I mean, I'm a Latitude slut now. You might be a depth of field <laughs> slut. I'm a Latitude slut. I just like Latitude. And so, as you know, uh, very much looking forward to HDRX, looking forward to yeah, uh, Spheron, but... But in terms of latitude right now in the digital game, I'm willing to put money on the table that um, Ari rules. So I'm keen to see what it looks like up hand, up close and personal. Excellent. Right. Thanks for that. Um, Mike, where can we find you? Oh, I'm here, really? This desk. <laughs> Every day. No, it's not true. Um, uh, you find me over at fxguide.com. That's where we're going to be doing the interview with Alex um, uh, that we mentioned earlier with that awesome 3D stuff. It's also where... Um, Obviously, we post tons of stuff, but then from there, um, all the stuff that we do, the in-depth stuff happens over at fxphd.com, our sister site. VFX show. VFX show is awesome. Has just done a T2, Terminator 2, um, uh, yep, which was good, and we're about to do a Harry Potter one. Excellent. Excellent. Mm, Harry mm. Potter. Mm. Mm. And I do some really interesting stuff on uh, Particle Sims at the moment, so we've got some stuff coming up on... Um, on that over at FX uh, Guide to do with um, Krakatoa, which is a something that you would not know about, Jace. No, but I've never it's heard a, of it. Um, awesome, has been around for a little while now, a massive billion sort of particle renderer. So whenever you see, oh, I don't know. You Waves, know, water? It, it's, okay, no, no. it's slightly Snow. more complicated than that. Oh, well, okay, the way a fluid sim works, this is, my, this is how I explain to directors all the time. Um, okay, so you do a fluid sim, you do it, one of two ways, um, but the most common way is a hybrid approach that involves simulating some stuff with some particles. So think of them like ping pong balls. You roll the ping pong balls digitally down a virtual environment, yep. and when you're happy with that sim, you polygonalize them, turn them into a blob, and then the blob you would render. And there are three distinct stages to that. And so you can have a fluid sim that is actually just unanti-aliased-looking dots that you might go... Like good motion, but doesn't look anything like water yet. Yeah, you could also have something that doesn't have correct shading and refraction reflections, but is more like a hunk of water. And then finally, you can have the uh, final thing that would appear in a feature film like Twenty Twelve or whatever. Um, well, the particle guys at Krakatoa, or the guys that um, uh, at Thinkbox that make Krakatoa, they pick up after the sim. So you give them the sim, and then they do the particle rendering because. Um, if you were doing smoke, uh, you know those sort of things where you get like a puff of, well, Harry Potter-esque type, you know, puff of vapors yep. and, and stuff. That's likely to be a Krakatoa rendering and they're rendering like billions of particles. And you get these really gorgeous kind of very ethereal um, looking things. And they 
are more than just rendering the particles. They're doing things that we call self-shadowing, which is to say that the particles cast shadows on themselves, on themselves. and they produce special mats so you can put the shadow of the cloud dust thing over uh, terrain. And it's really quite complicated stuff. You know, I don't know why I'm going on about this, but anyway, this hey, is all over in, in FX Guide. It's all cool. As we can see with that video, it's where it's all heading, the uh, 3rd and 7th. <laughs> we're all just gonna, we're all just gonna have to become uh, particle, uh, particle rendering physicists. It would be quite expensive to render your people from your <laughs> sea pool that way. That's true, but you could do the sea. We really, you could do the sea and the crashing waves. Really be much nice, more realistic than what you shot. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, guys, thanks so much for listening. Thanks, um, guys. And uh, again, thanks to Sony for um, letting us uh, play with their toys. Yeah. And uh, thank you, Joe. We're happy to play with the next one, guys. Just if you're listening, thanks. So yeah. <laughs> Till next time, guys. See ya. Thanks for listening. If you have any questions or comments, please email us red at fxguide.com. Copyright 2010 FX Guide LLC.